Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. So weird things happen within the African National Congress. We're used to it, but we can't afford to be fatigued by it. As voters, as citizens of this country, the ANC as a governing party remains one that has a massive electoral hold over us. And as a social movement, it is pretty important in the country as well. But there are two news items that there's been have been on my mind over the last couple of days. The first is that in Pumalanga, where there was an elective provincial conference that was held, murder-accused Mandlam Sibi um, had been elected as Treasurer General. And that prompted the African National Congress to remind him, subtext, ask him to please step down because he's facing murder charges. And then we've had the former social development minister, Batabile Tlamini, who had been found guilty of perjury, who also had been sentenced last Friday. And she now is to cough up uh, either 200,000 rand or four years in jail, half of it suspended. I was hoping she'd pick going to jail, but uh, obviously with friends in low places, she can easily pay that kind of money, if not from her own pockets, from theirs. But I want to understand what are the implications at a macro level of the ANC's apparent disdain for ethical leadership and even for lawful behavior. And I could think of very few people that would be as excellent as political analyst Abraham Fakir, who's also the director of programs at AWOL, um, Socioeconomic Research Institute to handle this topic because besides his general forays into social and political comment at the various institutions that he has worked at, a key thread running throughout his work life has been to pay attention to institutions in particular and governance more broadly. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema, whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. And Brian, thanks so much for coming back on Times Live. Hi, Eusebius. It's good to chat to you again. There's so much detail. I want us to get straight into it. We often focus on the individuals. I've just mentioned two of them. There are many more, Mandla Msibi, as well as the former minister, of course, Batabile Glamini. But um, I want us to talk about how institutions, both political parties as a category, as well as the state more broadly, are affected by the kinds of developments that I have alluded to, what the political and institutional consequences are. You've written a lot about this over the last couple of years in opinion pieces and also in more academic-minded uh, fora as well. 
Where do we start if we want to have a look at the systemic effect of what I'm talking about? Well, they say the best place, best place to start is the beginning. But, uh, you know, the beginning in this case just stretches so far back that the degree of impunity with which the ANC has behaved, both as an organization internally with regard to its own internal rules, but also the impunity that it has behaved with in the institutions that it has inhabited, particularly representative institutions, uh, Eusebius, and I'm, I'm singling out representative institutions because they could have helped um, the society to avoid eventually uh, landing up in court as we invariably do in most cases, whether it be egregious, non-compliance with public governance standards, or whether it's about more prosaic internal compliance with ANC rules. And mm -hmm. I, what you know, you've raised two issues now. I want to raise even bigger, more high-profile ones and see what you make of those. Think of the former health minister, uh, Zuelim Kisi, and the mm -hmm. digital vibe scandal. Think of mm -hmm. the former head of state, the um, president, uh, Jacob Zuma, and mm. the ANC as an ensemble, as a whole, not as a part, not as an RET faction, not in a, a, a CR17 faction or however else you want to term the constituent parts, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is dating back, even back to the Mandela administration and the Serafina scandal. Uh, you're obviously a little young, I think, to remember <laughs> when, that, when that was before Parliament. But, you know, you had successive scandals after that, including the arms deal, um, yeah. the Serafina scandal. And yeah. every time the ANC as a party uses its majority to shield itself from oversight. Now, had representative institutions, and this is the reason why I about representative institutions, had representative institutions been allowed a, to conduct the kind of digital, uh, vigilant oversight that they are mm. mandated by the Constitution to do, we might have not have ended up in the Constitutional Court, whether it's on Nkandla, sure. whether there had to be a, you know, a, a 600-page SIU report on, mm. on digital vibes, <laughs> just as two examples. So in, yeah. institutions could have saved us long before we got to some of the problems. In fact, the Zondo Commission may not, in fact, have been necessary. Remember mm. what former what former Speaker Baleka Mbete said about uh, about her presiding over Parliament that the Parliament was too busy. It was too busy. Listen to this carefully. It was too busy, and it was seized with other things. What more could wow. it have been seized that when it meant, when it required an entire Zondo Commission and huge amounts of resources mm. which could have been de better dedicated elsewhere. So, mm. so I'm afraid this is an ANC internal problem of impunity, both in terms of its internal operations and mm. in terms of its inhabiting of public institutions, especially representative institutions. Once it's in the executive, it's even worse. The impunity takes on a life of its own, literally. And the case you mentioned, Batabile Lamini, which you have written extensively about in terms of her approach to the law, but also her approach, if you think about previous inquiries into the CPS, remember the cash paymaster services. That's exactly what she lied in relation to, absolutely. And, right. but, but what you, but if I can come in there, I mean, 
each one of the examples that you've mentioned, depending on how long the memory of my listeners are, we will recall or re-remember if we had temporarily forgotten. But your expertise is to tease out the implications for institutions. Now, there's a slight conundrum here that some institutions remain bulwarks against the impunity you speak about. For now, the judiciary is one of them. But you've written on this in issue 82 of New Agenda, and you make a trenchant case for why, with the backing of evidence, because I've seen you do this in relation to the IEC even, um, why there is general public mistrust that is increasing when it comes to the democratic and state institutions. Tell us what you mean by that and make the case empirically, not just ideologically. So if you look at a series of public perception surveys over time, and we're not talking here about marketing public opinion surveys or those who are interested in stuff that comes around the elections because there's major methodological problems and flaws, but there are two which are solely dedicated to the public interest and who are both method methodologically sound. The first is the Human Sciences Research Council's uh, South African Attitude Survey. And the second is the Afrobarometer mm. surveys done across the continent, but largely mm. started in South Africa. Uh, robust methodology, uh, relatively big sample, good stratification. So all of the kind of technical specifications you'd look mm. for for robustness are met. And they got some very interesting mm. findings. Uh, the first is that... It, it, declines in confidence and trust in institutions um, across over time has declined sharply. The ones who perform worst are political parties. The ANC is not immune from this. Uh, the ANC is at, at the opposition parties are at 24%. So of 100, let's just say of 100 uh, people who are sample, adult South Africans, only 24 would have a great degree of trust in the ANC um, and, and 23 or 24 in opposition parties. So they, they're quite similar. So that's first. Second, many of the public institutions outside parties have had major declines, including, funny enough, things like the Constitutional Court. Uh, you would be pleased to know that the media, both public and private, enjoy slightly better confidence levels than most other public institutions. But with fake news and social media and other things doing the round, that's also declined a little bit, but it's not as cataclysmic as the others, right? Mm. But there are major consequences mm. for this kind of continued decline of trust. And those consequences are of several orders. The first is that it just means that less and less people are willing to participate, less and less people believe that they have a stake in the political system. And interestingly, Afrobarometer finds that two-thirds of South Africans are prepared to give up democratic elections and certain trappings of democratic government, such as separation of powers and so on, mm. if governments could ensure mm. that they will deliver services in terms of, you know, basic services, housing, jobs, and security. So those four things, if, if, if mm. any government is, is able to guarantee mm. that they will deliver those four things, two-thirds of South Africans are prepared to give up 
on democratic elections and some of the trappings of democratic government. I mean, that should worry. Frank, can I ask you this analytical question about the causal connection between the framing question of this podcast episode and everything that you've just detailed? Is it fair to say, and if so, to what extent, roughly, qualitatively or otherwise, that there's a connection between leadership impunity, where cadres of the ANC seconded to the state behave criminally or unethically. There's no consequences that follow and the decline in levels of trust in political parties and other democratic institutions. Is there a link there? Absolutely, there's a link. And I don't want to get too technical in kind of tracking the numbers and so on, right? But I've given you a general picture of what the declines in institutions look like. Look at the concomitant declines in political support for the ANC as a majority party. Now, uh, you know, the ANC will want to say no, but there may be other reasons why this has happened, etc. The long and short... Yeah, I was going to come to that later, and I know that you're about to detail the numbers over successive elections, and please go there. Along the way, um, I want you to engage the ANC's convenient response, which is to say... Oh, yeah, the the Oaks who love us just forgot to kind of turn up on election day. And all we've got to do in 2024 is kind of like really motivate a bribe to take a taxi to the polling station. If only it were that easy. I mean, you can you you can see there is a direct correlation and and people like to separate causation from correlation. But here there's both. Just look at these numbers, right? From 1999 to 2004. Uh, and remember, in 2004, the ANC was still enjoying a two-thirds majority, right? They even increased their support between 1999 mm. and 2004. Now, it's mm. it's curious to me because, you know, Mr. Mbeki's administration was not as fantastic as everyone makes it out to be. And that's an entire separate discussion. But just look at the, the numbers between 2004 and 2009, the first set of declines. And what happens yeah. between that period, 2007, ANC's factionalism, uh, all of the problems of Polokwane, the triumph of Jacob Zuma. In 2009, they decline in support for the first time by 3.79 percentage points. And the reason, uh, it's not that I walk around with these numbers in my head. It's just that it, there's been a piece that I'm working on, which details the stuff. So, so it's really fresh. Then between mm-hmm. 2004, uh, I mean, between 2004 and 2009, so the first decline, right, at 3.7%. Yeah. Then and there comes the 2011 local government elections. Another yes. small decline. But let's not compare them because, you know, systemically they're different. Yeah. Sure. 2014, 2014, a further decline of 3.7%. So it's cumulative mm. now. Now it's cumulative. And then between 2014 and 2019, and we know what happened in between in 2016, they lost Mm -hmm. three metros, three major metros, right? Then between 2014, 2019, another four and a half percent, if not more, Mm. right? So, So it's now continuous, cumulative, and compounded because the number of seats you lose in every successive election means you lose not only percentage share, 
but the actual number of seats. So my estimation is that if you look at what might happen on the basis of this trend alone, and the fact that you might have a slightly different electoral system come 2024, I don't know. Uh, we have to wait for Parliament to see what they do with, with regard to the new electoral system. But if we take this trend line, if you say yeah. you're another, another drop of three, three percentage three. points or yeah. so, you're looking at the very low 50s, extremely yeah. low 50s. Yeah. Now, in addition to that, not just that numbers, in 2016, if at local governments you lost three metros, Come 2021, how many did you lose? Not you lost almost all. You were saved in 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 Itikweni. You saved yeah. uh, uh, by Mangaung and 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 Buffalo City. And Mangaung is now talk to have the municipality under administration. The example I like to draw is 1979 Britain, when the Labour mm. Party, after being ascendant for quite some time lost you were a lighty then um, i was but um, i was a lighty <laughs> but i was i was so interested in politics that i followed the stuff every morning on radio <laughs> and you knew that labor lost to thatcher and that labor had lost mm. influence over the north but also the emerging metropolitan middle class elite in london and mm. once you lose influence not just authority but influence over them as the ANC clearly has, uh, the writings on the wall for 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 this is really fascinating, Brian. Because if I try and learn lessons from the numbers and the historical case study that you have dropped in at the end of the numbers analysis, it seems to me that the consequences of what we started out with impunity. What are the consequences for institutions? and public trust in institutions, that it's a double whammy for the ANC. Not only qua social movement is the average Joe, including us, losing trust in political parties and democratic institutions, but the ANC itself is shooting itself in the foot. So for all the rhetorical bravado, it does not have an, any pragmatic justification for being so indifferent towards unethical cadres and criminal cadres. Uh, and in my view, you see, it's not just, um, it's, it's not just being uninterested. Uh, it's also simply being completely inconsistent. So there is a clear, there is clear evidence that it appears in the ANC, one set of rules apply for some people, another set of rules apply to others. And in the desire or the fudge to keep it together, you keep fudging everything. So you, you'll say, no, it is important that someone like this step aside. But we first must subject it to a whole series of laborious processes. And by the time those laborious processes play out, it could go either way. And the consequences mm -hmm. for the person who, who so egregiously committed the wrong uh, is not mm -hmm. really felt. And, and the public doesn't really see it to be, to be, to be happening, including its Absolutely. own agency members, right? So that yeah. means for, yeah. as an organization, uh, irrespective of whether you factionalized or not, the reality is that people are always looking over their backs. People are always fighting something or the other, and the groupings and formations are shifting from moment to moment, issue to issue. Before there was there, there was some at least some kind of fixed formations of how you understood who stood where for what 
on what on what principle now i think things appear to have changed to such an extent that they you can shift alliances and allegiances from day to day issue to issue someone who was in the cr17 camp can no longer find themselves there will be friends so it means that the you see the only the only thing i would where i would differ with your framing a little bit is that i'm going to take a weird analogy because we can be patient in this episode it's just so fascinating we may as well slow down the analysis just for a couple of minutes um i was having dinner with a couple of other mates of mine a couple of weeks ago and <laughs> we were discussing lax lamini who's a whole conversation on his own and one of my dinner guests was saying that he's got that he code switches you know he's a cheese boy you can also speak township lingo and that's a, an interesting political superpower to have if you're able to code switch someone else parenthetically suggested because they misunderstood the code switching description and thought it was a diss of lux but it wasn't meant to be a diss and so they pushed back um thinking that lux is being dissed and they wanted to describe lux more favorably and they said no 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 it's not code switching the guy is not a chameleon of sorts that is truly who he is is these different parts i would say in an analogous way it's a small it's a small little point but 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 you know let's go there it's not that there are good guys and bad guys in the anc and often the subtext of the ret faction versus the constitutionalists is that you've got two different kinds of ANCs and there's a battle for the soul of the ANC what you call inconsistency is at an identitarian level what the ANC has become and it's another bad feature of what the ANC has evolved into that inconsistency is a feature of it yeah we don't differ on that at all um i i was merely adding to what you're saying in terms of its uninterest in uh, in 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 ethics i'm saying it's not just uninterest they're also inconsistent they are mm. consistent when it comes close to elections or when there's minor mm. consequences to be felt and can say sure. oh no look we're actually dealing with this but in mm. fact they're not now i want you to think back to the chairperson of the anc uh, mr guede mantashi so here's this mm. whole anc which is entirely in favor of the zondo commission including mr mantashi who as the chair and previously in whatever offices he held went and punted this thing even against what were perceived to be the ret faction now that when the when the second installment or is it the third installment fingers him and says there mm. must just the hint of a further investigation absolutely he suddenly like they saying two things a don't use the zondo commission to tear each other apart number 1 and number 2 mm. mm, they they you come close to me i'm going to interdict this thing and i'm going to take it to yes. court i'm going to take it on review, review. so mm. so it's not just um as i'm saying or your point about it being uninterested this is fundamentally yes a mm. core of the anc and it's its inconsistency is what it uses and has it has succeeded in doing so election on election in able to keep the majority but i think time is now running out it's now just too moribund in the sense that the disinterest the 
the the inconsistency, inconsistency. Mm -hmm. uh, the contradictory visions, the contradictory approaches on every single issue. You raise a single issue and you will find fundamentally contradictory issues. All of that stuff about uh, it's all in our resolutions. What our resolution says is what the ANC is about. What members say individually is, is their liberty to say. All of that is nonsense because what they do is that in spite of what the resolution says, when they go into institutions, whether local government, provincial, national, whether in the legislature, whether in the executive, sometimes even in places like the JSC, they behave with the attitudes that they go in as individuals. The resolutions mm. count for nothing, literally. I want to explore, lastly, two final issues in the five minutes or so that we have left. Another consequence, and by the way, dear listener, we, I, I've said this over the years, and I, it's, it's a basic approach I have to problem solving. You can't go into the solution space unless you have at least some overlapping understanding of the nature, the scope of a problem that you are solving for. So if you think we're being pessimistic, I truly, truly believe that many South Africans know that we are in the poo, but you don't understand the extent of it. So that's why today's episode is really diagnostic 99%. I can bring a Brian back in a couple of weeks and we can chart a way forward, but this is about understanding how much worse off we are than you actually imagine. So the second last theme I wanted to explore, at Brian, is that another consequence of the impunity isn't just all this internal stuff that we have drilled down into, but the poor governance that flows from the lack of ethical, technocratically sound leadership is that millions of South Africans do not live fulfilling lives, and that in turn creates a political vacuum, which is precisely where the opportunity for populist right-wing rhetoric comes in. Even the DA that pretended to be carving out a space in the imagined rational center is flirting with Afrophobic critiques, for example, of why the public health system is under pressure by saying, you know, foreign embassies must pay for, for their <laughs> folks who are apparently burdening our system. Gaten McKenzie, similarly. Herman, the same. The EFF flip-flopping on the matter. First progressive on the question and then realizing it might cost them some votes. And so can you also talk into the broader political landscape how the consequences of a massive social movement like the ANC doing what we've described in the past 25 minutes or so also leads to a certain kind of politics suddenly being capitalized on and how dangerous that is from a democratic theory point of view. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you, you I want to go even a little further back. I mean, the DA was flirting with this populism by uh, by talking about doubling social grants uh, a little while ago. And, and this is yeah. from people who meant to be fiscally conservative. But regardless mm. of that fact, you can see mm. how like a pendulum, they can also swing from moment to moment. Uh, one day identity politics works for them, another day it doesn't. One day they vote it, the next day they issue it. So this, this, yeah. this, this has infected all of our politics. I, I'm just going to conclude on, on two short points. Is that, see, the ANC, because of its own internal problems, 
is is going to is going to lead us at least in the short term to a great degree of politicized uncertainty and the uncertainty is politicized because they inside cannot coherently decide what they stand for and what they stand on what their principles are and what their policy trajectory is because they can speak mm-hmm. from not not just both sides of their mouth they can even speak by holding both sides and from the center <laughs> so there's that there's 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 that and that politicized uncertainty is used by people like Patabile Tlamini like mm. those who want those who want to to fight back against her uh, then if, then people will say oh no but you know you'll see once Mr Ramaphosa has a clear majority in the next ANC elective conference Lula, you will have a second term and be able to push through. The reality is that he will be caught, as I argued when he was elected in 2017, between paranoia and paralysis. And and that's going to be the ANC's problem. So that politicized uncertainty will lead him to that paranoia and paralysis. When you add the ensemble of the other loons in our politics, and I can find no better word, then you are looking at institutional instability because they are represented institutions, right? So you've got this unstable entity called the ANC, which is fighting against itself. Sometimes it teams up with opposition parties to knife another another of their faction that they don't like. And it happened in PE. Uh, You must look at at, um, Nkabisi and Letiana's book in which he details governance in PE, where a portion of the ANC will side with the opposition just so they can undermine another portion of the ANC. But that is Mm. just a short-term tactical move, right? And that kind of thing, when you add the politics that you described of the other parties, of the mess in the ANC, you're not only looking at politicized uncertainty, you're also looking at institutional ambiguity. Because like in state capture, State institutions are repurposed for other for other things. Now institutions are just completely ambiguous about what role they serve and who they yeah. will serve. Not the public, not the public interest, not a redistributionary agenda, but the narrow mm-hmm. interest of a detached political class uh, which is interested yeah. in their own little machinations and incremental advantage. I do want to, I know you wanted to rep there, but I promised that there was a last theme besides looking at the consequences for the rest of the body politic and they instead of responding rationally they're responding in a populist manner the last theme that i had in mind that rhyme for you to just um give me your your thoughts on is some a distinction that you make i i don't like the distinction but i think it's a useful distinction to understand the anc's omnipresence in our society the ANC as a social movement, as opposed to the ANC as a political party, you sometimes think of them conceptually in two different ways. And I think that's kind of interesting. And when I was watching just the images in the tent, the kind of thing you and I have been witnessing at ANC conferences forever and the day, and I was watching the images over the weekend um, from Malanga, and it's almost as if, and I was watching it like with a little bit of, I don't know, feeling quite sad, at, at a local level, the potency, the motive force of the ANC as a social movement can be so strong, and you've done research on this before as a fellow, um, that the way branches operate and communities relate to councillors, for example, that the ANC sometimes benefits from the incredible power of the ANC at different 
levels of our society. And our late friend Karima made this point to me on Instagram Live once and said, one of the challenges for the ANC during, during lockdown is if you have elections while there's a pandemic, it can't benefit from the psychopolitical drama that comes with being out in the communities and being in stadia and that kind of thing. So the question leading from that description is the following. On the empirical record of governance that we have spoken about at the top of this conversation, the ANC should have been booted out and have that 1979 moment. But it doesn't, and we need to account for it. The lazy way and the racist way to account for it is to think that poor black people are stupid. But there's a complexity there, isn't it, in terms of why the ANC is arrogant that it may at worst get the lower 50s that you were talking about. And that presumably has to do with what a potent social movement the ANC remains. In part, yes. And in part, it still has the tentacles out into society's grassroots, but it's starting to fade. And I think they can see that. Now, dealing with your race, you know, the, 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 the trope that you project, which, which of course is fundamentally racist, these silly black people who keep voting for the ANC, there's two things that people who proffer that miss. The first is that, remember, people are empirically living a life which, and to the credit of the ANC, is fundamentally different from a type of life that they lived previously under apartheid and in the first years of a transition. So you can't deny the reality of the extension services that the ANC as a government engaged in, you know, the, the massive housing infrastructure policy and so on. That, I think, was good for the ANC until around 2009, 2011, maybe even. But since then, you look at the voting patterns, even of what people call the silly blacks, and there is a great spread. There is a much yes. greater spread of vote away from the ANC, number one. Number two, the ANC would have noticed itself that its tentacles into society's grassroots is actually waning quite considerably because if it weren't, they would have been able to command its presence from 2016 onwards and it was not able to do so. Mm -hmm. It couldn't get the numbers out. And I, this nonsense that, oh no, you know, our people are just angry with us and if we make them less angry yeah. at us and we reach yeah. out to them, they'll, they'll yeah. turn out. They're speaking to us and the, and the weather was bad that day. Yeah. Uh, it's that's not true anymore. It's it's clear in three things. A, the fact that people don't turn out as much. Second, that detraction that the ANC often had and the credibility with which it could speak has been lost. That's evident in the in the public perception surveys in trust and confidence. The declines are just too sharp to be able to write off as coincidence Absolutely. or as a message. Whereas our people yeah. are unhappy with us. That's not the case anymore. People are actually showing that we are not turning out to vote and we are not turning out to vote as a deliberate choice because we can't choose any of the others, mm. but we're also not choosing you. So this, this distinction right. matters, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's no longer that, you know, the ANC is still strong as a social movement. No, it's now weak as both a party and a movement. Well, I hope it gets that message and it's up to it to do so. Otherwise, there will be interesting electoral consequences in 2024, which will keep us busy as analysts and as broadcasters. I'm just not so sure whether it's good for the country necessarily, especially when the alternatives are flirting and being inconsistent with right wing and other kinds of populist messaging in turn. 
Always love your insights. So Brian Fakir, thanks so much for coming on UCBS on Times Live. Nice to chat to you and hope to chat to you again soon.